It's always encouraging hearing Toby's faithfulness to, to the work of the ministry, isn't it? He's just so faithful with his conversations and getting into those uh, gospel conversations. It's just encouraging to hear. We're going to take our Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 4 for our Bible study this evening. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll continue uh, picking up where we left off a few, few weeks ago, about a month now, uh, working our way through the book and enjoying the opportunity to understand this uh, letter from Peter written to the exiled uh, believers uh, who have been facing persecution and facing that suffering and the difficulties in life and uh, how he encourages them to continue to respond even with the suffering and the difficulties in his life. Now, in, basically, if you're, unless you have and aren't aware, maybe you aren't, but most people are really aware of what happened this last week uh, at the Oscars. Um, where one individual decided to smack another individual and uh, treat, treat the Will Smith decided to, you know, uh, smack Chris Rock for a joke that he had made and, you know, some inappropriate, what he felt was inappropriate comments, things like that. And uh, it was interesting that the fallout that has happened throughout the week, if you're, you're watching or listening to any of it, and I know some, like, I could care less about, and really I, I could care less either, but it was an interesting, interesting dynamic where... Here is this individual who is part of, you know, this, this Screen Actors or the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. He's part of this, this entity. And this entity has a code of conduct. They have ways that they expect their members who are part of this group to act, how they, they expect them to behave. In fact, they talk about in their, their code of conduct that we oppose any form of abuse, treatment, harassment, domin uh, discrimination, and there is no place for people to abuse their status, power, influence in a manner that devalues another. And so, obviously, through this week, through interviews and everything that's been happening, Will Smith eventually, you know, he has basically, he's resigned from that, that group because he did not live up to, to that standard that they had for their group. Now, when we look at us as believers, there, there is a calling that we have. There is expectations that we have as a believer given to us by God through his word and that we are to live up to or expect these certain things. And, and we have to live according to what the scriptures say. And when we don't, we don't lose our salvation, but that fellowship is, is hurt. That relationship, the, the fellowship we have with God is, is hurt in it. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to look and embrace our calling. What are we called to be? What are we called to do? What should we be expecting? And Peter has been working us through the passage, and he comes to chapter 4, and he's going to say, now for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. He's been working through this concept of suffering, the difficulty that is being faced because we are living out our Christian life in a day-by-day uh, direction, a day-by-day -day way. So as we, just to give ourselves a little bit of frame of reference, if you remember back to the end of chapter 3, Peter has basically just told us through Jesus Christ, there has been victory over these, these hostile powers, over these ones who were trying to thwart. And even by the end of verse 22 in chapter 3, talking about Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. All of this talk of subjection and submission all the way through chapter 3. All these authorities who think they're in, in power are now ultimately brought in subjection to Jesus Christ because he is the ultimate authority. And so we learned as we wrapped up chapter 3 about a month ago 
that there is victory and vindication for the righteous through Jesus Christ. And that amidst all of the difficulties and all of the suffering that we may experience here on earth as a believer, as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. No matter what happens around the world, no matter what difficulties, Christ is still on the throne. And so we we talked about that we in good conscience need to be pledging our life to him, being faithful and, and submitting our lives to him. And that this temporary suffering that we may face here in this world is ultimately part of God's good plan for us. Hard pill to swallow. And yet we look and we say, okay, this is, God, God is allowing and allows and may allow us into and facing suffering and difficulty. And so we have to learn to handle suffering and our challenges with humility, with dignity, with respect toward other individuals. So that when chapter 3, verse 15, they ask us of the hope that is within us, we can answer and we can share our testimony and that we can see the gospel uh, go forward because how we handle our suffering, how we go through these difficulties, it really does play into our testimony for Jesus Christ. And so Peter now reminds us and says, okay, all of that is here. We may be facing it because of who we are and how we live. So Peter uses the example of Jesus Christ to remind us as believers that there's an expectation to following Christ. What should we be expecting? And he he lays it out and he says, we need to be expecting to suffer. Since Christ's suffering is the pathway to glory, chapter 3, finishing it up there, believers need to prepare themselves to suffer. That's where he picks up, for as much. He's going to tie us back that Christ has suffered for us. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So he brings it out and he says, okay, what we just talked about, now I'm going to launch into our life, practically. Where we're going to face. And he's going to say, I've already talked about the suffering, but he says, it is a reality. It is an expectation. Since Christ has suffered in life, and in death. That's all of the, the, the last part of chapter 3, verse 18, for the unjust, or the just died for the unjust, that he suffered. It was talking about his death, talking about the, the crucifixion and the burial, the, the pain, the suffering that Christ went through on our behalf. The flesh here, when it talks about in verse 1, where it talks about that Christ suffered for us in the flesh, it's not the sinful flesh like Paul often uses, where he'll talk about our sinfulness, our flesh. We know that Christ did not sin. He was without sin. It's talking about his, his physical body here. So as he suffered physically, he said, be prepared that that may come for us as believers. Because if we have been united with Christ by faith, then we need to understand that we need to identify with him in suffering. That as we live the Christ-centered life, that as we live a life that is demonstrating the mind of Christ, it becomes contrary to the world and thus is going to cause conflict in our lives. In fact, as you look through, why, why should we expect to suffer? One, because Jesus suffered. That's where Peter starts. He's like, if Christ, our master, has suffered guess what? We're going, to, we're going to face this as well. And that's really been the point that Peter's been making over the last 10 verses, is that he did suffer, and because of that, we need to prepare ourselves for the fact that if we are living righteously in this unrighteous world, 
there is the strong potential of facing conflict, of facing suffering, of facing the, the, the verbal abuse, of facing potentially physical uh, abuse that, that may come from others. And because the other reason that we can expect it is because our new life in Christ will bring about suffering. Look at, look at the passage, just a quick progression of it, where he talks about verse, verse 2, that you should no longer live the rest of this time in the flesh to the passions, the lusts, the desires of man, but to the will of God. For the time past, it may suffice that us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. So he talks about, okay, this is what you used to be. You used to live for this, but now you're living for this. And, and look what happens in verse 4. Those people that you used to run with, those people that you used to know, they think it's strange that you're not doing that anymore. And then what happens by the end of verse 4? What are they doing to you? They're speaking evil against you. So there's that, there's that part where, okay, there's this living differently, which brings about surprise and offense and then mistreatment because of the lifestyle that we've chosen to live because we've chosen to follow Jesus Christ and to live with his mindset in this world. So, so Peter lays out the fact that we can and should expect mistreatment. We should expect suffering in our lives from those who do not follow Christ. It's part of what is going to come with the being part of the body of Christ. It's an expectation that we should have. So since we should expect to suffer, Peter wants to help prepare us for these difficulties. He doesn't want to just say, well, expect to do it and hope you can figure it out. He says, here, let, let me help you understand what you should do. He says, first of all, prepare. Prepare yourself to be a person of resolve. He says in verse 1, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. Peter's using a military, a warrior term here. It is the, the, the person who is preparing for battle. They, they have to come to grips with, I'm going to go in, there's going to potentially be pain. There are going to be other people who are trying to hurt me, kill me. I need, to, I need to prepare my mind for that. I need to prepare my body for that. I need to get ready. Paul, Paul talks about it, Ephesians chapter 6, that as we're going into our life, we're to take on the armor of God. Part of that is preparing ourselves to go into this world. So Peter here is, is following a similar vein and saying that just like the warriors of old, just like the, the soldier who is preparing themselves to go to battle, so too must we prepare ourselves to face suffering. And he, he says it's going to take discipline. It's going to take determination, takes grit to get ourselves and to say, okay, today I'm not going to want to live for Christ. My flesh is strong. I'm going to want to naturally live for my flesh. But God, I'm asking for the power of the Spirit. I'm asking for the strength to have the discipline, to have the determination, to have the grit, to go forward and to live for you. We are to be preparing our minds. Notice what he says. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. The same mind of who? It's the mind of Christ. To be looking and saying, I need to have the same mindset. The one who willingly went and suffered on our behalf. The one who went through the agonies. The one who faced the mistreatments. I need to have that same attitude, that same direction, that same mindset that Jesus Christ had when he entered into those moments of suffering. That he understood that he wanted to bring glory to God. That he understood that he wanted to, uh, he would allow himself to be, to be silent sometimes before, before the slaughter, as the sheep was dumb before the slaughter. He allowed himself. 
And there are times that we just want to fight back, but maybe sometimes preparing our heart and our mind and saying, how would Christ act in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this difficulty? To develop the mind of Christ is to be and learn to think biblically, to think clearly, to say, okay, when I'm facing this situation, what does God's word say about this? What does God's word implore me to be uh, using and invoking in my life? And so Peter is looking and saying, prepare yourself. You know it's coming. You know there is suffering potentially coming because you're a believer and because you're living differently. So prepare yourself for those moments. Continue to think biblically. Arm yourself with the word of God. Prepare yourself to go into battle so that you can stand strong against the, the, the wiles of the devil. So that when those fiery darts are, are thrown at you, you are able to stand and to, to do right in the midst of those difficult times. We are to resolve to live as a stranger, as an exile. We are to expect hardships like that soldier preparing for battle. How is this evidence? Our resolve is evidenced by a holy life. That's what Peter's been driving it all the way from chapter one. Hey, be holy because he's holy. You need to live righteously. Let your conversation. He goes, he goes through it. Some, some have seen this passage here. When you look at verse, the second part of verse one, for he has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. Some see that, that playing out as that's Christ. And when Christ conquered sin, he, he didn't. But Christ never had sin. And it seems like Peter is actually looking and saying, okay, for us as believers, when we face suffering, and we do it with the right mindset, that in our flesh we have ceased from sin. What, what is he talking about? He's talking about coming to the point when we're willing to suffer and to go through, it's, Peter looks and says, it's often because you have not allowed sin to reign in your body. You've looked and said, the suffering was worth it. I'm going to mortify my flesh. I'm going to put away the sin and I'm going to live and allow, allow the suffering to come for righteous living, for a holy living that is there. Those who suffer for the gospel demonstrate that they are done with sin. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It's not saying that we will totally cease from sin. But what, is, what he's talking about is if we're willing to go to those extremes and face the difficulties like our Savior did, what has happened is we've been living holy. We've ceased from this constant reign of sin in our bodies. We're putting that away. We're mortifying. And when, when people see that, what does light do to darkness? It illuminates. It shows. And people don't like that. People don't like to, to have their sins made known or to be seen or to be standing next to somebody who, oh man, they always look like a goody two-shoes. Well, part of that is the reason that I say that to somebody or someone says that to you is because they're wrestling and going through. They're like, I know what I'm doing isn't good. And I see this person, and they're living righteously, and they're doing the good things, and now I feel guilty standing and, and, and being next to them. So, so it's, it's to live out our new life in Christ. We are to look and to say, okay, this is what we are called to do. This is the expectation that Peter has for our life, and God ultimately has. Is that this new life that you have through the, through the suffering of Jesus Christ, that you live that out. That we be the holy light that God has called us to be. That is the expectation. That is the calling we are to embrace in our lives. That he should no longer live the rest of his time. The next verse, as we walk through, he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. 
basically Peter here looks and says, the rest of your life, as a believer of Jesus Christ, you and I need to seek to fulfill not the fleshly desires that I want to fulfill, but rather the will of God. The, the, the word talks about the lust here. It's not just talking sexual lust. It's talking the, the, the fleshly desires, the impulses that are within all of us, that we all struggle with. They're different for each person here, but we struggle with those fleshly desires to live for the flesh rather than for the will of God. And Peter's looking and saying, for whatever days God gives to you for the rest of your life, seek to live for the glory of God to live the way that God intends for us to be living. And so he says, leave to do that. He says, leave your human passions behind. That's, that's where we get into verses two and three, where he talks here and he says, take away those lusts. And then for the time past, verse three of our life, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. That's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> what Peter's basically saying is he's saying, hey, You've done this. You lived this way for so long. Stop. Stop going back. Don't go for that. Embrace your calling. Live for what, what you are called to do. And Peter gives this vice list that is here. And we often see vice lists in the, in the, the New Testament. Where there's, hey, these things we need to be avoiding. What Peter's calling us to is really to put put this lifestyle in our rearview mirror. Yes, we know it's there. We see it back there, but we're not trying to get back to that. We're trying to go forward in our life. We're, we recognize that there are those struggles in the past, yet I need to look and say, I need to go forward. And so Peter, Peter brings out this, this vice list that, that, is, that is brought here, and we're encouraged to put it, put it away. These sins here, they can be very much characterized as what is to not be a pattern in our life. Now, when you read through them, most of us are like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. Like, I don't want to ever say that I struggle with lasciviousness in church because everybody's like, oh, that's really bad. Nobody can define what lasciviousness is anymore, but they all know it's really bad. Okay, no, you can't. So he says, take the lasciviousness, the lust. Now, that could be dealing with the, the gross immorality and sexual sins. A lot of people, a number of commentators believe that it's just this general overview to say, hey, evil, sin, rampant evil. Put it away. Put, put, it, put it to the side. Don't let it be part of your life anymore. He talks about then the excess of wine, the revelings, the banquetings. He says all these things that really were a focus of the Greco-Roman world, the, 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 the world in which Peter was writing to. He says these things were there. They were, they were taking part. It was like one big frat party going on where they were, they were constantly, the word for excess of wine is, uh, it's actually talking about the idea of the drunkard who is consistently just, just inebriated. The, the revelings, the banquets that they go on, the revelings is the idea of the, the orgy, the constant sexual rampant sin that was just taking place throughout the Roman Empire. The, the overindulgence of foods, the banquetings was the idea that they would go, they would gorge themselves, and then they would throw it back up and they would go at it again and they would get more drunk and then they would do, and there was just a, the, an absolute total lack of self-control. And he says, that should not be what 
characterizes us as believers. And, you know, I, I look at it, and I have to, I, I wrestle through, okay, I, I don't have a problem with the, you know, the excess of wine and the revelings, but, I mean, I, I've, I have to work on the self-control of overeating. And I'm not the only one. And I know I'm not supposed to say that. But, but we're called to that, to have some self-control in our lives. We're, we're called to work on those things. Peter says, put that away. Show, show ourselves to have self-control. He goes on, and he talks about these abominable idolatries. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't wrestle with abominable idolatries. But put yourself back in, in their time. Understand their life. It covers those things which are forbidden, which are unlawful. In their culture, religion and culture were completely intertwined. We, we live in a, a day and age where we don't like it all the time, the separation of, of church and state, the separation of religion and, and what happens in, in your private life is different often. People see it that way in public life. But during this time period, that was not the case. You would go to a feast with your friends, and part of the feast was emperor worship. It was just there. So now what do you do as a believer when all of a sudden I'm faced with, I'm not supposed to worship like this. I'm not supposed to be doing this because of my new life in Christ. So now you put yourself in their their situation where they're looking and saying, I can't do these things that I used to do because it brings me into a false worship. They separate from that, but people don't get it. They're, they're, why would you stop doing this? Why would you stop living this way? You, you've done this your whole life. It's, it's part of who we were. You would go to the meat to, uh, market to buy meat. And now it's sacrificed to idols. And is this okay? Is it not okay? We know that was a struggle because Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians. Because it was, just, it was intertwined into their life. You'd go to the temple and you would, you would go sleep with prostitutes. Because that was part of the worship during that time. And you're like, wait, how does this all work? And so now you put yourself in this framework where these individuals are separating from all of this, living righteously, living up to their calling, living the way that God intended them to live, but it's putting them at odds with their culture, their friends, their family, their loved ones, who they've always done these things with, are now looking and saying, why, why are you different? And we don't like that. We don't like what we're seeing. And so what they do, the word, that's, the word that's used here for the abominable idolatries actually is rooted in the word blaspheme. Some of you probably have a blasphemers or blasphemy in your translation. But it talks about that these, they would start to blaspheme against you. Well, that makes sense when you start putting that in its context. Because I can't do that. I'm not going to live that way. So now my friends who don't like that are looking at me and they're becoming upset with me and they're, they're blaspheming. And when it's speaking evil, uh, talking about that, is, is they're coming against me, but they're ultimately saying, we don't like what you're doing. Well, we, don't, we really don't like what God's calling you to do. And so there's these, these struggles that, that take place. So Peter says, these habitual acts are not to be indicated to our lifestyle where to put them away. Now, you may look through that list and say, well, I don't struggle with those things. So I'm okay. That's, that's not what, when, when there are these vice lists in the New Testament, if you, it's, not, it's not a goal of saying, okay, if I can just go through all the vice lists and just list them all out, and if I don't check any of those boxes, then, I'm, man, I'm, I'm a great person. 
what Peter is driving at is saying, the old life, who we were before we got saved, the passions, the struggles that we face, sin, sin, the sin struggles we face, he's looking and saying, put that away and now live for the will of God. Live for God's will in your life. So I need to put, and it's a, it's a constant theme in the New Testament. Put off this, put on this. Get rid of that, go from a negative to, hey, this is the positive we need to do. So he says, in the passage he says, but the will, do the will of God, verse two. And he talks about, you've for a long time done the will of the Gentiles. So it's time to stop doing that and start living up to your calling. Live up to who you are to be and who I am to be. So Peter has already demonstrated that these godly pursuits here in, in, his, in his book, in his letter, he's talked about in verse, chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Be holy in all manner of conversation in your lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 1, he gives another mini vice list, laying aside malice and guile, hypocrisies, talking about our speech, talking about the way that, that we communicate, the evil that, that comes through. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, abstain from these fleshly desires. Live an honest lifestyle before, before people. Chapter two, verse, chapter 2, verse 13, through all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, where he talks about the submission to the government, our relationship to our bosses, our family relationships, our relationships to one another. And Peter is saying that's, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Not those old former passionate lusts that we have from our sinful self. He's looking and saying, you and I need to live up to the will of God. How do we do that? We follow his word. He's revealed his will for us. There's so many things that are not a mystery about the will of God. They're here. We just sometimes don't like them. Because this pull is so strong in our lives. That, that passion, those lusts that, that build up within us, they're strong. And so that's why Peter says, prepare, arm yourself with determination, with grit to say, I'm going to seek to live holy by the power of God this week. I'm going to go forward this week and live righteously because I want to, one, do the will of God, and two, I want to be a light in the midst of a dark world. So I, I seek to, to seek to do that. Chapter 3, verses 15, 16. He says, you need to learn how to interact correctly with grace, with dignity, with reverence to those who come and attack us. That's hard. But yet that's the mind of Christ. That's, that's what Christ did when his attackers came. He would respond with respect to the people. He would still challenge them. He would still lay it out. But yet he looked and said, hey, I'm going to do it with respect and with dignity to these people. Peter's basically telling us, live differently than your former way. And for each of us, that former way is different. The things I struggle with are different from the things Sharon struggles with, that are different from the things that Leon may struggle with or that Philmon may struggle with. Or we could go right around the room and just, I, we all battle with these different passions, and yet there's some similarities that we struggle with. And so we look and say, God, help me this week to live not for my former passions because I want to prepare myself to be a follower of Christ, to live up and embrace what he has called us to do. There's a story I read this week about um, these ducks. 
And uh, I thought it was a really interesting, interesting story. It was like a parable. Uh, and it talked about there was this farmer. Farmer had all these ducks. And he would raise the ducks, you know, for the eggs. But ultimately, for food, they, they, they enjoyed eating these ducks. And I was like, okay, where's the story going? Well, one day, a wild duck, a mallard, was flying overhead and saw all these ducks down there and thought he would just swoop in and land. And so he swoops down and he lands and he's like, wow, this is great. There's food all the time. There's water all the time. There's shelter. When this, man, this is just wonderful. And so this duck rationalizes with himself and he just says, I'm, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay here with these ducks. And so he, he stays for a couple days and he's really loving all the, the ease and the, the, the food and everything. And as time goes by, as the weeks become months and the months, you know, elongate, this duck looks around and all of a sudden he hears, he hears other ducks soaring above, flying, flying. He's like, oh, I remember when I, I used to be able to soar. I remember when I used to fly like that. He's like, I think I'm going I'm to go for that. And he starts to do it, but he becomes so fat that he couldn't fly anything above. And he just lands. He goes, you know what? I can't do that anymore. I'm just going gonna, gonna to stay down here. And all of a sudden he started to notice one day, one of the ducks would go with the farmer, and the duck would never come back. And he was like, huh, that's odd. But I still like it down here. I still like to, to, to stay here. And little by little, day after day, ducks were going until it was his turn. And the, the farmer finally picks him up. The duck begins with the farmer, and we all know how that story ends. What was interesting to me is how the commentator tied it back into our lives that we are made to soar. That is our calling, the high calling of God, to live holy, to live for him. And yet we see the ease of our society. We see the passions. We see the, the comfort. We see the things that they, they may enjoy, and we think, man, we want that. And so we take our lives and we begin to live that way. And we get weighted down by the cares of this world. And we begin to love those things more than the soaring that we once did. And what does it leave? Where does it lead us? Proverbs talks about it. It leads to destruction. It leads to death. It leads to hurt. It leads to ruin. And remember what Peter told us earlier in chapter 3. He says, you don't want to suffer because you're doing wrong. He says, how much better is it to suffer because you're living righteously for God? And so the commentator just talked about stop living for the things of this world. Peter is saying you've done that for so long. Put that away. Learn, because too long have we feasted at the pleasant fare of this world. And now we can no longer soar to the heights that we were intended to soar to. That we were called to be. Because we want the simple. We want the easy. We just want to give in to all of our fleshly impulses. So Peter is yearning with us to say, yes, there could be suffering because of this life, but live the life that God intended you to do. And what happens from that? When you start to live that way, when I start to live that way for the glory of God in our lives, when we start to live for his holiness, what, what potentially happens? Peter says, you're going to get some cold shoulders. You're going to get people, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You can have very close friends who you've been friends with for 30 years 
And now because of your radical new life in Christ, they're giving you the cold shoulder. They don't want to be, the coworkers don't invite you to all the parties anymore. They, they look and say, he's a little bit weird now. He's different. I don't know if I like her that way. And, and we start to face those things. And, and what's the natural inclination? Now, I know I'm a people pleaser. I know that. And I know I like, I like your approval. I do. That's, that's my struggle. So my natural struggle is, if all of a sudden I hear that these people aren't liking what I'm doing, well, maybe I'll stop doing this and I'll start doing what they do because I want their pats on the back. And we, we face those battles. We go into life and say, I want the approval of. And we get our mind off of and our eyes off of who we should be seeking approval from. And we start seeking approval from the people that we ought not be seeking the approval from. And so Peter looks and he says, what's going to happen here is these people who you used to run with, these people that you used to do things with, they're going to think it's strange, verse 4, that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. So when we choose to prepare ourselves to live godly, we have to understand that the effects could be costly. There could, be, there could be friendships that are lost. That, that is true. There could be relationships and, and coworkers and, and difficulties that arise. But Peter says that is worth it because you're living up to what you are called. Because you have broke from the past and you're not pursuing your former life, lives. There is a, a response that comes from others. And so Peter, Peter fleshes that out for us to help us understand. And Peter's, Peter's not looking and saying, it's not going to happen. It's just going to all be easy as a believer. He's telling these believers who are going through these difficulties, I, I, I get your pain. And God does too. He understands. And let me, let me tell you why it's happening. So Peter helps him. And he says that he's looking and he says, notice that Peter's not saying, and I think this is important to understand. He's not saying that you stop hanging around the unsaved people. He does look and say, though, it's a matter of how you're hanging with them. Are you, he's like, don't, don't anymore run to the same excess of riot. He doesn't say, don't ever run with them again. He doesn't ever say, don't hang with them again. He says, but it, not be, it should not be said of you and I that, hey, this was really cool. We went, to, uh, we went to a total rave party the other night because I wanted to tell my friends about Jesus, but everybody was hammered and smashed and doing drugs. And, but it was really good. That's, Peter's saying that's, that's not what we are to be doing. But it doesn't mean that I can't still go have a meal with my friends who are not saved. It's just I don't run to the same excess of, of wickedness and riot. And what does he say is going to happen? He says, others will be surprised. They're going to be astonished is the idea of they think it's strange. They're like, whoa, whoa, this is what is going on with you. You used to be the party animal. You used to be the life of the party. We loved hanging with you. You brought the fun. And now you don't want to hang with us? What? This is weird. This is strange. This is different. Others may see that you no longer run headlong is the idea into this wild and reckless living. That's the excess of riot. But you're not, you're not just going anymore. And some of you are looking and saying, man, I haven't done that in 40 years, Pastor Art. I'm, I'm way off that train. And yet at the same time, Peter's looking and saying, make sure we're not running to our lusts, our flesh. Make sure we're living righteously in this world. So the change is normal. If you look through Christian history, 
we, we heard it through the, through the missions conferences. The, the, the people who get saved and the radical change that happens. But what happens in those countries when there's radical change in their life? What comes into their life? Suffering, persecution, difficulties. We see that here. It still happens where, where maybe someone gets saved out of a very strong Catholic home and the family sort of puts them at bay because they don't like the change. They don't like the difference. You've went to this new religion. You're not, you're, you're over there. And so it does, it does still happen. The result though is that these non-believers, um, they feel offended. They feel judged. They often feel misunderstood because now you're living this, you don't even have to say anything, but because you're living this new life in Christ, this holy life that others see, they're like, huh, they're different. I don't like that. Because if you're living this holy life, I'm looking at what you're doing, and I'm looking at what I'm doing. You don't even have to say anything. Quit judging me. Quit. Stop. Uh, Jimmy Carter told, I know, great. Anyway, don't, anyway. Um, I figure we're in a recession. Let's talk about the last one. Um, Jimmy Carter talked about one time he went golfing with two uh, PGA golfers and with Billy Graham. And uh, he, he, he wrote, it, wrote about it in one of his books. And as he was talking about it, he said, when they got done, one of the golfers was asked, so how, how'd it go today? He's like, I am so sick and tired of the, the Billy Graham cramming religion down my throat. He's just forcing it in there. This was, this was ridiculous. One of my, oh, it was just, and he went over and he calmed down for a few moments. And the reporter came back and said, so how did you play? He's like, oh, I played terribly. And then he looks at, so what did, what did the Reverend Graham say that really ticked you off? He's like, honestly, he didn't say a single thing about God the whole entire time. It was just that he was there. And, and isn't that true at times? You might not say anything, but it's because you identify as a Christian. You live a life that is different and holy. There are going to be those next to you who may not like it. They feel judged. They feel offended. And so what do they do, Peter says? He says they begin to malign you. They malign your life. They speak evil against you. They blaspheme against you. They blaspheme against God because it is your way. It reminds us very strongly that we are but strangers. We are exiles in this world. We're only here for a short time. We don't completely identify with our society. Because when you live righteously, it brings about this this evil speaking, the reviling, the vilifying, the blaspheming. It's the process of speaking against Christians. And in doing that, and in speaking against you, they're ultimately speaking against God. They're rejecting that because of your lifestyle. And so we're called to live this way, to live righteously. And at times it becomes so intense that as believers, we have to battle. Is it worth it? Do I continue living the faith? Do I continue living out the gospel? Or do I just say, you know what? I know I'm going to heaven and I'm just going to do my own thing. And I'll sort of try and figure out my way, God way. Maybe we'll squash it all together. Because we look at our society and it's pressure. It's hard to constantly, on a daily basis, be living holy. 
And yet God says, you can do this. I'm calling you to do this, to, to live that way. We don't share the same values, the same aspirations, the same goals as our society. We, we shouldn't. I hope you don't. Because when you match up God's goals and, and most of society's goals, they don't line up. And so we don't have that. We don't fit into this natural fabric of our society. We're strangers. We're sojourners. We're exiles. All these terms that Peter has been using to say, hey, this world's not our home. We're only here a short while. Don't be so nearsighted that you live for all of this, that you forget to live for the one who you will spend eternity with. That you live for preparing this home and you forget about your eternal home. And so Peter is reminding us that not fitting into society is not bad. And yes, it may bring about suffering. And yes, it could bring about reviling. But he says, live to your calling. Live to what God has told us to do. And so caving into the societal pressures of society in order to not make waves or to not be different, it's so short-lived. It's so nearsighted. Peter says, it's not the final word. What Their words, their evil against you, that's not the final. Yes, your, your context, the struggles you're facing, the, the maligning that you're getting for living righteously in this world, Peter's looking and saying, that's not the end. That's, that's not the final. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. He talks about who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Peter looks and says, your present circumstances are not the last word. If you end it in verse 4, they're speaking evil against you. Man, what, what lack of hope there is. But Peter looks and says, that's not the end. The one who is the righteous judge. The just judge is going to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. So he draws our attention to this future hope. He says, this circumstance that you're in right now, that's not, that's not it. He says, there's coming a day when we will, we will stand in judgment. And he's like, you, you may feel like you're being unjustly judged right now. But one day, you'll stand before the just judge. And your holiness and your righteousness will be noted. And those who are, who are maligning you and those who are blaspheming, they will face the Holy One. Remember what happens. At the throne, at the foot of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. They may blaspheme him now. They may revile you now. But one day, one day you will be vindicated. One day the righteous judge will look and say, well done. That is such a motivation. It should be an impetus for us to say, it's hard. It's difficult to live up to this calling, but I want to strive for it because my creator, my savior has said, I can live up to the holiness. We will we'll be facing it, but the comfort comes from knowing that this accounting will be done one day by the just judge of the universe. I may feel unjustly judged when I live righteously in this world. I may feel that there are skeptics and there are people tearing me down and I struggle and cringe at it. But I do it because it pleases my Savior. I do it because one day as I stand before him, 
I want to stand not ashamed, but I want to be able to stand and hear him look at me and say, well done. That's our goals. That's our, that's our calling that, that we live up to. He says, your present circumstances are not the last word. Judgment is a healthy motivation for holy living. He says this is coming, and Peter's reminding them to continue on because God does see. He is taking account. It is an accounting term that he's he's noticing what is happening. He notices when you suffer like Christ did because you lived righteously in a hostile world. We are to live. We are to work. We are to witness in a conscious anticipation that this will happen one day, that Christ is coming, and that we will stand before him. We want to prepare ourselves in that way. And God will judge both, both the living and the dead. This is not just us. It is not just them. But he, he talks about judging all people. Now, that idea of living in the dead, it, it brings about a, a struggle in the passage. Ultimately, the wicked, it says, will be recompensed. They will be dealt with for their evil mistreatment. But what comes about from a, a non-believer's perspective and, and think about it. Think about it from their perspective. Why would I even consider trying to live like you, this holy person? You, you don't, you know, you don't get drunk. You don't go to all these these crazy parties. You choose not to take part in some of these different dynamics in, in life. You choose not to watch certain things. You choose not to read certain things. You choose not to listen. And if you're looking at it from their perspective, a totally non-regenerated, non-safe perspective, it's stupid. What we do is dumb. Because they're looking and saying, why would you not want to enjoy all of this? And we look and go, there's a reason. Because my holy God has told me that I should not that I need to put those things away. Because they look at it and say, man, you're going to live this whole strict life, and guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to do the exact same thing that I'm going to do. We're going to die. The only benefit is, I got to enjoy all this where you didn't. Why would I, why would I want to give it all up? And we look at it from a, from a believer's point of view and say, wait, there's a reason I do this. So they face this. They look and they say, we all face the same fate. It's death. So there's no advantage of really being a believer in their mind. Why, why would I want to do that? There's no advantage. We're, just gonna, we're all going to die. And this would have been a concern for believers as, as well. Like, what about our believers who, who died, who were faithful to God? What happens to them? And Peter addresses in verse, in verse 6, he says, for this is the cause, the gospel is preached also to them that are dead. It's not that they got a second chance. It's not that the gospel went to people who are dead. He's, he's talking about those who have already died and have heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. What, what happens to them? Peter's addressing this, this dynamic, and he's saying your death is not the final word. It's, it's not the end. That's why we live for God. Because this is not the end. We're, we're living for something far greater because we're just passing through here. So he, he looks and he says, they're going to be judged according to men. This is, the idea here is, it's the same faith, the same judgment that all men face. It's, it, Peter's talking about death. That all, all men are going to face the death 
you know, barring the rapture, every single one of us will die. Every single non-believer will die. People will die. It is, it is a fact of life. And so Peter says, let the, those who have died judged according to men in the flesh. They've died in the flesh, but they've heard the gospel. They've responded to it. That's that first part of verse 6, that the gospel is preached to them. What, is, what does he say? He says that they are alive. And they are alive through the Spirit. Alive by God in the Spirit. They, they, you think they're just dead. There's nothing there. The non-believer looks and says, it's done. But Peter's looking and saying, that's not the end. And that's why we live to this calling. Because when I die, that's not the end. I'm alive. And you will be too. And even the non-believer has to understand that they will be alive. And that's why the gospel is so important to them because where they're at does not put them in a good spot when they die. And so we as believers, we look and we say, okay, wait, I want to live in this life to my calling because it may not seem, it may seem foolish to others, but to God, it's what he's called me to do. He has called me to live for him because my circumstances, the suffering that I face, that's not the last word. The last word is going to be from my Savior. When I die, it may seem to others like I wasted my life. Now, I gave my life to this thing called ministry. Why would, I, why would you do that, Art? Because it's not about this life. It's about something far greater. It's about someone far greater. Why would you, your coworkers, why would you go to, why are you going to church on a Sunday night too? Man, can't you get enough in one day? Why would you do that? Why would you want to have fellowship with all these other believers? Why do you want to live this holy life? Because that's what I'm called to do. It's not just about this moment. It's about the life beyond. It's about my Savior. It's about me living to the high calling that he has called you and I to. To, to live that way. The gospel promises us that we will be raised from the dead. That death is not the end, but it is the beginning. And he says, those who were dead in the flesh, according to men, just like every man does, but those who have responded to the gospel, it's not the end. We are going to be alive through the Spirit, and it is going to be a wonderful day when we are ushered into the presence of God. But I have to take that passage in light and say, wait, am I living up to my calling? Am I doing what God has called me to do in this life so that I can be a light, so that I can be a testimony that yes, I may face suffering, I may face difficulties, but it is because this is what my Savior has called me to do. So as believers, we should expect to suffer because Christ suffered and because we're living differently, at least I hope we are, we should prepare ourselves now for the future suffering that's going to come as a follower of Christ. Please don't get caught up in this idea of we like, we like the gospel when it makes us comfortable. We like the gospel when it makes us feel good. We like the gospel when it gives us these benefits in our life. But when we live out the gospel day by day, hour by hour, it will bring about suffering in our life. And that's okay. Because Christ suffered. 
And Peter says, just like he did, for living righteously in this world, you and I too will face that. But let's prepare for it. Let's get our minds ready. Let's fill our hearts with the gospel, with the word of God. Let's prepare ourselves now to remain steadfast amid our suffering. As we look around our world, we see the battles, we see the struggles, we see the difficulties that arise. We know that there is the potential that in the years to come, as believers, we could face suffering, we could face persecution. We know for our fellow believers around this world, we need to be praying for them that they would remain steadfast in the midst of their suffering because they are facing some of the things that we hope and pray to God we never have to face here, but we could. So let's remain steadfast and let's follow Christ's example regardless of our situation, regardless of our context, whatever it may be, whatever your job situation is, whatever you're going through in life, whatever you're facing, Seek to remain steadfast. Don't become the fat duck who can't get up and soar. Keep yourself spiritually healthy. Keep striving to soar toward holiness. Become holy, holy. Totally gripping the idea of I want to live as I am called. I want to embrace my calling that God has told me I need to embrace. Prepare. Expect it. Remain steadfast. Don't be a fat duck. God, I pray that you would help us in our lives to not wallow in the world, but God, help us to live for you. Help us to prepare our hearts and our minds to know your word, to be able to think biblically and clearly. God, thank you for the challenge that it is to know that suffering may be around the corner. And God, I pray that you would help us to remain faithful to you and steadfast in those hard times. Help us to have opportunities this week to shine the light of the gospel into the lives of others. Help us not to shrink away from that, but to embrace that and to take part and to share with others the good, great hope that we have through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship and to understand your word. In your name we pray. Amen.